name is Alyssa, and I go to the Shreveport MC, and I'm reading the word today. So we're in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, as of their, as of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You may be seated. All right. I think we just had a speaker go out, something, they'll look at it. Uh, kiddo, stay in here. Stay with your parents. We've got a little something for you in just a second. You know, we've been going, I'm going to keep it a surprise just for a second. We've been going through this new messages, uh, new series of messages called All In. And uh, last week, Pastor Jason gave you a little flower. And that was to remind you that God wants to walk with you. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden and he wants to walk with you. So how many of you kids still know where your flower is? Anybody still know where it is? Okay, we got extra flowers in the back maybe when you walk out. I want you to keep that so you can remember every time you see it, put it in your room somewhere. Um, <clears throat> put it on your backpack, put it somewhere you can see it so you remember that God wants to walk with you. Second, uh, today um, we're gonna talk about giving. We're gonna talk about generosity. And I want us to go all in on generosity. You know, college football's back. And who loves college football? I mean, it's just, even if you don't love it, you know, you turn it on, it's great. It reminds you of the fall. I was watching a game yesterday and the cornerback, the, the one who, who covers the receiver, the wide receiver, he blew the play. He didn't know who he was supposed to cover. Because of that, his man was wide open in the end zone. They threw him the ball, scored a touchdown. The guy's team lost because 10 people on that play knew where they were supposed to be, but one person didn't. The power of all of us together being all in, right? That's, that's what we're going after. So kids, I uh, got some friends coming around. They're gonna hand you some money. Okay, $5 bill. Every kid in here that's about to leave and go into group, uh, they get $5. Uh, if you're a kid, just kind of wave your hand. We got some people, some, some really wealthy people coming around giving you $5. Yeah, y'all have to do the eye test. If they don't look like, if they look older than fifth grade. You know, this is the people that come on Halloween and you're like, bro, you got a full beard. I'm not giving you... That is not what we're doing. Now, okay, kids, when you get to $5, I want you to hold it. Let me tell you something. I, I deflate the balloon real quick. This is not for you to use on yourself. Yeah, I know, right? This is not a gift for you, but it's a gift through you. Let me give you some really specific instructions, okay? I want you to use this $5 to bless someone this week. Someone in need, you know, us adults are going to focus on this today and we've got bank accounts and savings accounts and we've probably lost $5 worth of change in our couches, but you don't have a job. Most of you don't, and maybe you don't have a big saving. So I want to entrust this to you so you can participate with us. I want you to use this $5 to bless someone. Maybe a homeless man that doesn't have any money, someone hungry that doesn't have anything to eat. 
Maybe you can get really creative with this and go use your $5 to buy some cleaning supplies to go and clean your brother's room or something, whatever, you know, it's probably nasty in there. You might need that. You need, you probably need more than $5. You have to borrow something from someone else. I want you to think about this. How am I going to use this? When I first came to plant this church, I went around doing some fundraising and I went to this church in, in Dodge City, Kansas of all places. And I walk in, it was this little bitty church and I give this little message and I talk about church planting and then I'm gonna leave. And before I leave, this little six-year-old came up and she gave me this little cardboard uh, collection case of some sort. And she had been working for a year to save this money to give it to someone. She gave it to me. I wept as she gave it to me. Her parents told me how she had worked every weekend to save money to put in this thing, every weekend without a doubt, thinking she was saving it for a gift for someone. She gave it to me and we used that. It was, it was almost $50 in that little, we used that to start, help start this church. Isn't that amazing? Of a six-year-old. I want you to use this $5 to bless someone this week. Now, you might want to give it to your parents right now so you don't lose it when you pass out of here. Um, but, but I want to hear how you used it, okay? So you can, uh, you can find me next week and tell me. You can get your parents to call me and tell me. I'd love to see how you use it. I'm going to teach you one word real quick, kiddos, real quick. This is the word steward. Y'all say it, steward. Okay, not steward like, like the little mouse. This is steward. And steward means to manage or look after someone else's property. Now the Bible uses this word to talk about how we use our resources. Do you know all that money that your parents have in their bank accounts and on their credit cards aren't there, isn't their money? It's God's money. God says everything we have, even the very air that we breathe, the life that we have, the house that, we, that the bank owns, the, 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 the cars that we drive, None of those things are really ours. We are stewards of the resources of God. And you are a steward. My parents taught me when I was really little to take 10% of everything that I earned and give it back to the church and then be conscious of how I spend my money because it's really God's money. And I want you to have that same framework. Okay, kids, you're dismissed out of here. I wanna see how you use your money next week. Adults, if you haven't, I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to jump in there. Again, in our All In series, everybody gives. And I know that's probably really bad English. It should be everybody will give, or I don't know. Everyone, none of it. This, I like the way this sounds. So maybe bad English good theology, everybody gives. Paul uses the analogy in Ephesians 4, I think Jason's gonna teach from this uh, coming up soon. He's talking about growing into maturity. He says in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love as each part is working properly. He's talking about us in this room, that every one of you are part of a larger body of Christ. 
And it takes all of us to reflect the love of Christ to a, to a, to a watching world, to a dark world around us. As each part does its, as each part works properly. Only then do we make the whole body grow up in love. I love this idea, each part working properly. Everybody in, everybody, we've talked about everybody prays. And everybody walks with God. And I hope you've been doing that devotional this week. And these are just kind of training wheels. Some of you are experts in this already. We're going to do this together. Everybody gives. I like this picture of this disassembled bike. You've probably seen these. That it takes every part on the screen here to make this bike work properly. Now, could you get away around with one wheel? Maybe. It wouldn't be... Wouldn't be easy. Could you, could you get around with the whole bike but without the steering wheel? Maybe a really short distance. Um, could, you get, could you get around without the brakes? You could, but it'd be dangerous. I found this other picture of this. This is what happens when you lose your brakes. Yeah, this guy's like, oh, look at this building behind me. And this guy's like, my brakes, my brakes left. See, we need all the parts. Hudson came to me just last week and said, Dad, I've been riding my bike. It's got no brakes and no kickstand. I was like, well, the kickstand, we don't need that. Brakes we need, right? This is why I want to go all in together. This is why the series is important to me. We're going to walk through this a few more weeks, and then we're going to start the uh, gospel of Mark, Mark's gospel. In Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places through the local church, through the church. The gathered people of God should be the visible picture of the heart of God to a watching world. The way that we interact, the way that we love each other and care for each other should say to the watching world, this is how God does forgiveness. This is how God does generosity. This is how God shows up for us. This is how God does truth and grace. The way that you work as a teacher should be a testimony to all of your coworkers. So this is how God does education if God were to be in education. That's how we do it. We're supposed to be a representation of the Father's heart through us to the watching world world all of us together so we've been focusing on these different things to give us some training wheels for us to do this together some have never walked with God consistently or prayed consistently and my prayer is that they've started that even this week last week we talked about a church a body that we would walk with God together We'd be an abiding church, not a performing church, not a posing church, no caricatures here, but a genuine community of faith who inhales the love of the Father and breathes out obedience to what he's calling us to do. So let's jump in. Today, we're all in on generosity. Everybody gives. The gathered people of God should have a heart of just overwhelming, maybe even scandalous generosity. I wanna show you what this looks like in our text today and Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Scripture tells us that ultimately, let me get to the, the, the root of it, ultimately generosity and giving is a heart issue. 
Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to walk through all that Proverbs has to say about giving. We could do that. When I was growing up, my parents taught me that everything I made, I should give 10% of that back to the Lord, a tithe, and I should save 10% for future endeavors, and I should live off 80%. And that's been good wisdom, and I try to practice that most of my entire life. This is how we should live. And we could certainly back it up with scripture, but I don't want to go into the talk about the rules this morning. I want to talk about the heart. Because when our hearts are changed, everything changes. Think about this for you, those of you who are currently in that newborn stage. You can remember the newborn stage. There's just no sleep. Everything is fuzzy in life. You've got just baby food and baby poop on everything really you remember that you're just so tired I just remember being like I think I might die from being so tired and I did nothing really but have the have the babies in, in the house you sleep at three in the morning that baby starts crying you're like oh go to sleep they keep crying and they keep crying and I'm like let's cry it out let them cry it out and Ashley goes in there and picks up that baby and the frustration turns to overwhelming love in the moment, right? You pick up that baby. Because when the heart changes, everything changes. Now, this was the litmus test of Jesus for us. Jesus gives us insight into living. He warns us that there's something so powerful about money. He says that where our treasure is, that's where we'll find our heart where our treasure is. See, money's like this gauge for us. You know, you have the gauge in your car when your tire's low or you need to check your oil or the engine has problems and it'll start flashing or dinging at you. This is what money is for us. Money is the gauge that tells us where our heart is. This was the test Jesus often used. One time he was interacting with a, we call him the rich young ruler. He had all this money, he was doing all these things. He encountered Jesus on the way. This is not a parable, this is an actual story that happened. And he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what, what all do I have to do to get to heaven, to have, to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, do you know the commandments? He lists several of them off. He says, I've been, I've been doing that since I was a boy. But see, Jesus saw his heart. And Jesus says, okay, well, take all the things that you've defined yourself with, all, all the things. Go sell those, give them to the poor, and then come and follow me. The passage says the man's face fell. He walked away from Jesus, not with Jesus, because he thought he had riches, but his riches really had him. With a changed heart comes a changed life. When we look at the Christians in Scripture, we see this their lives are so marked with radical generosity. You look at the book of Acts and the birth of the church and these people who were once enemies of God and enemies of each other. You remember at Pentecost, they had come in from all different places, speaking different languages even. And at Pentecost, the spirit of God fell in such a way that when Peter got up to preach, that he spoke in a way that everyone understood it in their own tongue. And it says that many came to Christ. They actually counted thousands, 3,000 that one day came and put their faith in Christ. And they started doing life in church together in these little house churches. 
Well, the problem is, is they're from a different country or different place and they can't speak the language and they can't work and there were so many needy people among them that those that had things like 401ks and extra things, they would sell those and give it to the poor. Acts 4 tells us that no one had any lack. What could take a man? What, what would happen in a man that he would move from an enemy with someone one moment to radically genera radical generous living towards him the next. Only a changed heart can do that. And our passage today in 2 Corinthians, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Now the church at Corinth was, was the New York City of the day. They were the one wealthy church probably that Paul had some interaction with. They, they were also the wildest church. You read First and Second Corinthians, there's some crazy stuff going on. You'll, make, you'll feel a lot better about our church when you read that, okay? He says, we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their parts. To give you a little bit of context, in Acts 16, remember Paul gets a vision. He's headed eastward towards China. He gets a vision we call the Macedonian call. He's sleeping at night and he has this dream of a man who from Macedonia who is calling him to bring the gospel instead of eastward in the trek he was going, but now to turn westward back towards Europe and eventually the United States. And so he does turn and when he turns, he plants some churches in Macedonia. Macedonia is the northern part of Greece, modern day Greece. The southern part is called Achaia. You can see that even in scripture. And so he's going to go to Macedonia, to northern Greece. He's going to plant some churches there, namely Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, I think, where we get some of those letters from. We see here in 1 Thessalonians that those churches were under heavy, heavy persecution. Meaning that because you came to Christ, you no longer have a job. Meaning, meaning because you have turned now follow the way, you no longer have a home or a village or a community. You have been pushed out. Rome has really turned up the heat and the pressure. And so they don't want anything to do with you. And so you have now been moved out. And that's the severe test of affliction it talks about here. Also, at the same time, there's a famine in Jerusalem. No rain, nothing growing. All these churches in Jerusalem are literally starving to death. They just can't find food. And so Paul takes it upon himself to go and raise money from other churches that are doing a little bit better, namely Corinth, who's writing this letter to, so he can send money back to Jerusalem so they can have some food to eat. When Paul first informed the Macedonian church about the offering for the famine-stricken believers in Jerusalem, you know Paul's thinking, I'm not even gonna ask them for money because of their severe conditions. These people don't have anything to give to me, he would probably think, or I don't even need to tell them about the need because I don't expect anything from them. Maybe he would expect them to say, that's a great need, Paul, but you see our, it uses the word severe test of affliction. We'll be praying for you and that church in Jerusalem. We, we can't do anything here. But that's not what happened. Paul says, and much to his surprise at the time, 
In verse four, it says that they came to Paul begging us earnestly for the favor and taking part in the relief of the saints. First point I get from the passage is generosity is an expression of the heart. Generosity is an expression of the heart. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse three, for they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, those in Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Generosity is an expression of the heart. If you'll pan out just a little bit in this, just these eight verses, Paul uses this idea of grace, grace giving. Because of the grace of God, he says in verse one, I want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. That the grace of God God's unmerited favor on us, undeserved favor. We deserve condemnation, but God gave us forgiveness. More than that, he gave us adoption into his family. More than that, we are now everything that is rightfully the son of God, Jesus is now ours. Man, that is the grace of God. And because of that grace, it has so radically changed this church in Macedonia because of the, the grace of God that has been given among the church of Macedonia. He says, because of God's grace, as a result of God's grace, this really speaks in their motivation for giving. They didn't do this so their name could be on a wall. They, they didn't do this so that they could claim it on their taxes. They didn't do this because they thought Paul might mention it in, in this book. They didn't do this because they would ever, ever in their life meet those believers in Jerusalem. No, they did it from the heart because of the grace of God had changed their hearts. Again, in verse eight, Paul's not even commanding these people to give. It's for their eager willingness, it says in verse 11. This tells us so much about giving. We should have so much joy in giving. Chapter nine, verse seven says we should give not reluctantly each should give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but with joy because God loves a joyful, a cheerful giver. This word joy just keeps showing up, doesn't it? This should be the life of every believer, those in severe affliction and those that aren't. Those that are walking in the valley of the shadow of death, and those that are walking beside the still waters and the green grass, we should have joy. James says we should have joy as we walk through difficulty and affliction because of the many trials around us, we should have joy. Paul says that we should have joy in the waiting and joy in the praying and joy in the hard things of life and joy in the great things of life. And here, here the apostle Paul says we should give with joy. You know, my kids were growing up, they had their own toys and they were pretty selfish with them. 
You know this, the little toddler stage where they say things that embarrass you a little bit. And you would bring some friends over. Hey, we're going to have a play date. And uh, remember Hudson had this, uh, this Paw Patrol van. And he just, truck thing loved it. All his little characters went inside. We would have community group. We would say, hey, Hudson, some friends are going to come over and want you to, want you to play with them. Let, them. let them play with, with, with the toys. And he looked at you like you were an alien. Like, you know, no one's going to touch this. And on multiple occasions, what if I just went in there and said, Hudson, I'm stronger and bigger than you. I'm going to make you play, share your toys with them. And what if Hudson said, okay, I'll do it. But then he took the Paw Patrol truck and threw it across the room at someone and hit him in the head. Outwardly, he's sharing. Inwardly, not so much, right? See, this is the thing with giving. Sometimes we write that check. And outwardly, we're writing a check, but inwardly, we're murmuring. I can't can't believe I got to do this. I don't even know. There's a lot of money. I don't even know what the church does with this kind of money. If that's your attitude, don't give. Because that's not the kind of giver that God's even looking for. God has all the money in the world. He doesn't need your begrudging tithe. Now, conversely, let me tell you this. Sometimes we do have to discipline ourselves into finding delight in it. As we give, we see the grips of culture and things and stuff lose its effect on us. It's a remedy to stinginess as we give. This church here, out of their abundance of joy and extreme poverty, the Macedonians saw generous giving as a privilege, not a problem. It was a delight for them. It was a blessing, not a burden. It was a thrill for them to be a part of it. So church, how do we get to that place where generosity is a privilege Let me share just with you a couple things. One, first of these is priority. Look at verse five. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. First to the Lord. This is really all you need to hear and see about this church. They had given themselves first to the Lord. They didn't look at themselves. They didn't look at their situation. They didn't even look at their circumstances. They looked at the master and said, God, here we are. You've been so good to us that you've given us and rescued us from sin and guaranteed us a place with you forever and ever. And if you want to do a mighty work in and through us, then we're open to that. We simply give you all that we are and all that we have and we trust you to do whatever is pleasing in your sight. That's laying the yes on the table before you know the question God's asking. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Don't you see the gospel in this? It's just written all over it. Now, friends, this is where I think that most churches mess up, most families mess up, most individuals mess up, is because we want, to, we want the Lord in the margins of our life. When, when, when we can't answer the question, we want to we have a, you know, we want to have a free call that we can call him. Hey, God, what, what am I supposed to do about this? 
When we get a bad report from the doctor, that's when we want to rush to the Lord. When, when things aren't working the way that we should, when we're living in frustration, when we're walking through affliction of our own, that's when we go. But that's not how it's supposed to be. It's the relationship we've been invited into is to make him Lord of our life, that we would commit ourselves and our stuff and our dreams and our visions and everything about us, we would commit them first to the Lord, that he's not in the periphery somewhere, that we don't organize our lives around what we're wanting, what we're chasing. We organize them around putting the Lord first. This is such weird math. Look at this math. You have that severe test of affliction plus extreme poverty. Do you have the one that's got the next one on there that's got the little, plus, there you go. Severe test of affliction plus extreme poverty. Well, that's just gonna be a really tough life. No, no, no. In the kingdom of God, this is the weird math, kingdom math. Severe test of affliction, extreme po uh, poverty equals and abundance of joy and radical generosity. Only the gospel can do that kind of thing. Only the gospel can take such a dire, tragic situation and from that turn it into the abundance of joy and radical generosity for another church. Isn't that amazing? This is what the kingdom of God is like. First, our priority. Secondly, that we cultivate this attitude of generosity by prayer. If you are earnestly seeking God's heart, there are gonna be times when God gives you resources. He puts them into your hands and you're not, there may be a windfall. You're not exactly sure how we're gonna do with this. And as you pray, God's gonna direct you what you do with that money. This is why I hope for our kids this week. As they pray, these little prayers of five and six and seven, eight, nine, 10 year olds, that they learn that everything is the Lord's and that the Holy Spirit can actually direct them. That they can have the means and someone else can have the need and they meet that need with their means that God has given them. We cultivate the attitude of generosity by prayer. When you have a windfall, when you get money back on taxes, when it didn't cost as much as you thought it would, when there's money left over at the end of the month, do you first go to the Lord and say, Lord, this is your money. What do you want to do with it? Can I be honest with you? Most of the time I don't do that. I just think, oh man, a new truck will look real nice. How about some new countertops? Or just the drudgery of like buying knickknacks on Amazon for thousands of dollars, it seems like. Let me tell you this, if you live with an open hand, God will pour so much through you that you, it will literally blow your mind. My second point, first is that generosity is expression of the heart. Second, I think the text shows us is that generosity brings more provision, brings God's provision. I'm fascinated by verse three. It says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. How do you give beyond your means? They gave according to their means, that was expected, and that was really generous of them to do. They had nothing, they had just a little bit left, and they gave according to their means, but then Paul says, but no, they took it the next step, and they gave 
above their means. They gave beyond their ability. How does that even make sense? They gave beyond their ability, but not beyond God's ability. See, if you look at giving as simply us sharing our resources, you miss the big picture. Generosity is when we allow, when, when God allows us to be the giver of his money, to be his hands extended and his arms outstretched. This was the whole story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. The, the first time it's in there. You remember that? With the little fish fillet happy meal? That, that he has nothing, everyone's hungry. The disciples are like, what are we gonna do? Jesus says, y'all figure it out. They go scour. We only found one little boy. He's got a fish fillet. And Jesus is like, that'll be perfect. Jesus, there's no way this one little sandwich, happy meal version of a kid is gonna feed 12, 15,000 people. Of course not, according to your means. But you're forgetting this is according to my means, says Jesus. And Jesus rose it up and blessed it. And there was so much that it filled everyone to their, to the, everyone was full and 12 baskets left over just to show how generous God is. See, generosity, opening our hands to what God wants to do, actually brings more of God's provision in our lives. They gave beyond their ability, but not beyond God's ability. This is how the kingdom of God works. Now, many of us have never seen the kingdom work like this because we live with closed fists and we would never give beyond our ability. Most of us would never even give up to our ability. Flip the page over to chapter nine, 2 Corinthians chapter nine. I want you to see how this idea plays out as Paul's trying to teach us, this church at Corinth, but us in this room, <clears throat> how this idea plays out. He says, the point of this is, is this in verse six. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctant, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Listen, this is, not, this is not Old Testament stuff. This is not prosperity gospel. This is just gospel. And some of us get a little weird because some people do say some weird prosperity gospel things. So what, you're saying that, that, that if I give, that I corner God into giving back to me? Well, not if you give a heart like that. But if you give with an open heart of generosity, with joy because you love, uh, the, the, the word cheerful there is hilarious because you're just, you're just having the, the best time giving to God. You just wait and watch what he does with the seed that you sow. He who, ply, who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food. Who is that? Who supplies seed to the sower? Well, God, well, God does that. We didn't invent the seed. Who, who supplies bread to the hungry? Well, well, God does that. Now, farmers may cultivate the land and they may plant the seed, but what if God doesn't send the rain? There's no, there's no bread. God's the one who does that. 
And if God does that, the promise is here in verse 10, he who supplies the seed for the sower, that's God's job, and the bread for food, that's God's job, he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Notice that it didn't say your seed for consuming. You see the generosity principle? It's not about you. Just as the money that I gave your kids, I told them they could not spend on themselves. God in his grace allows us to spend a lot of his money on us, but he wants to bless people through us. Seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 2 Corinthians 9 shows us a true path to financial security. Here's what it is. Yield your finances over to God. That's it. Learning to trust him to provide. Learning to give. When you become a giver, you don't ever need to worry about running dry because God loves to provide for those who honor him. He loves it. There's an Old Testament story. First Kings 17, the widow Zarephath. You remember that? Elijah's traveling through and God said to go find the widow. And I think Elijah's thinking that she's gonna have this really nice Airbnb and this like Joseph uh, vision pantry thing of food. And he goes and finds her and he's like, oh, God sent me to you. And she's like, well, you, you got the wrong one. That's just me and my son. We got, we got a little meal and a little oil and we're gonna eat this together today and then we're gonna die. That's pretty dire situations. Maybe a little dramatic, I don't know. They're literally preparing their last meal. That's the one that God sent Elijah to. Couldn't he have sent them someone who had storehouses? Absolutely could, but that's not the point. He's trying to teach us something. Elijah says, how bold is this? Well, uh, feed me first. Let me have the first biscuit. I know there's only one biscuit. Let me have the first biscuit. I remember when my mom would cook for us on Saturday mornings, we would have a big breakfast and she would cook these homemade biscuits. I still love them. She'd put them on the table and there was a season where Leighton would take the biscuits and lick them all so he could claim them. And then I jumped in and started licking some too. He didn't care about my licking. He just licked on top of that. This is basically what Elijah's doing. Like, let me lick the biscuit. Like, we just feed me the first biscuit. That makes no sense. Verse 15 of 1 Kings 17, I don't have it on the screen. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elisha. Generosity is what actually brings more of God's provision. I know it doesn't make sense. God's saying, would you trust me? He incorporated in the life of his people in the Old Testament a Sabbath. And on that Sabbath, they couldn't work. Now in an agrarian society, a hunter and gatherer society, you had to work every day just to eat. And he said, on this day, I want you to do nothing. Everyone around you is gonna be frivolously working and, and doing all the things that they do, all the things. This is gonna set you apart. But Lord, we, we're not gonna eat. He said, I want you to trust me. If you can weave this into the rhythm of your life of just trusting me. And he would go on to the next. We can look back in Deuteronomy at his rule to them. He said, and here's what I want you to do. 
When you sow your seed and harvest is about to come, I want you to take the first fruits of your harvest, the first fruits. You know, when a farmer goes and harvests, they don't all mature at the same time, depending on which exact field they're in and they couldn't gather it all in one day. And God says, I want you to go out before you even know what all the harvest is gonna look like. I want you to go in and take the first fruits and I want you to set them aside. I want you to give them back to the temple. But God, we're starving and we don't know what else is gonna be. We don't know what's like, trust me. This is the kind of people that he wants us to be. The people who move from a scarcity mindset of running out, oh, I can't give this because I'm gonna run out, to a generosity mindset of running over, from running out to running over. God delights in those who delight in giving. God delights in those who delight in giving. And there are three ways that we can give. Similar, we see this in the text. We can give below our ability, stingy giving or maybe cultural giving. I read this week that evangelical Christians in America give about 2% of their income to charity. That's not just a church, just 2%. They live on 98%, they give 2% and that's the Christians. That same study said if every Christian, everyone that calls themselves a Christian would actually tithe 10% of their income that we could fix hunger in the world. Imagine. But instead of doing that and being stewards of God's money, most of us, we feel like it's my money. And so we live on all 105% of it. People who give below their ability People who give equal to their ability, that's the people who gave according to their means here in the text. Paul said that not only do they give according to their means, those people who give equal to their ability, that you've put it in and you can write a check or you can give or you can support the hub or you can send money down the chain or our church planters or you can give to other uh, gospel causes that you feel passionate about, that there are some people you can give that and, and that doesn't really affect your life that much. You don't have to go from a two-car to one-car family to afford that kind of life. You don't, you don't have to skip on vacations to afford that kind of life. That's just the, the, the way that it's, it's in. You, you give equal to your ability. That's, that's the convenient giving. You, maybe I'll skip a coffee. I'll give for my savings. But here the highlight is those that gave above their ability. This is generous giving. And that's only possible because of God's great grace and generosity to us. Here's the final point in the text. Generous giving results in God's glory. Generous giving certainly brings blessings to other people, absolutely. It can help them in a time of need. It can remind them of the care and compassion of a loving God. We can be generous not only with our money, but with our time and our talents and our energy and our attention and our influence and our words. All these are gifts from God that can be used for the good of others. See, we really glorify God 
primarily with our money in three ways. One, we bring our first and best to him and so in the kingdom advancement. This is what we're doing. It's what I'm going to give you a chance to do later today. And then we have money, extra money so that we can bless one another and we can bless the city that we live in. And we've been entrusted with money so that we can actually celebrate the grace of God in our own lives. Like God's not opposed to us having nice things. He just doesn't want the nice things to have you. Ultimately, we don't give to bless others. We give give to glorify God. In chapter 9, verse 11, I mean, verse 12 and 13. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. Look at this, how God gets the glory in this passage. God gets glory through the thankfulness of the Jerusalem church that received the gift. They are so thankful that other people are meeting their need and they're giving God the glory because of it. It's what Texas says. God also gets the glory because of the obedience of the Macedonian churches with their money. That they had money, the spirit of God moved in their heart to give the money and they gave it and they're glorifying God the whole way. Isn't God so good that he gave us this money that we could bless these other people? God also gets glory when they give with the right motives. It says here in the text because their lives have been changed by the gospel in verse 13. And God is also glorified, he also gets glories through the prayers that both they and them prayed along the way. You see this? The Jerusalem church is praying because they've got a famine and they can't eat. The Macedonian church over here, they're praying because they want to be used mightily of God. And God brings these two together and they're depending on God for it. The, the Jerusalem church didn't call the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church didn't look, look for some ads on Craigslist to see who needed the money. God's the one who orchestrated it. He moved in their heart. They used, gave beyond their ability, met the need and became a channel for overwhelming grace being poured into their life. Isn't that awesome? Listen, we're normally a quiet church, but when you talk about money in this church, man, I would think I'm doing a funeral for somebody. If we're honest in here, most of us are not generous because we worry about what could happen in the future. If I give this little extra to God rather than build up my savings so that I have financial security, What we need is a change in perspective. Listen, I'm not arguing against saving. Proverbs says that saving's good. I have savings accounts. Not much in there, but I have one. What we need is a change in perspective. Listen, about a year and a half ago, we did this above and beyond initiative. Some of you were here for this. And we were looking towards the future about what God might do to permanently us place our roots. And we would have a, a platform that we could do ministry from. And it was about the giving, but it was way more about so many other things. And we did that for about 10, 12 weeks. And God did more in our church in 12 weeks than maybe in the past decade. Not from the giving. I mean, the giving was great, but the stories of life changed. We baptized more people in that 12-week period than ever 
in the history of our church. We had people surrender the ministry to go plant churches, to uh, adopt kids. We saw marriages reconciled, a new group started. I mean, just the testimonies that you've written on a card that I have in the office that I, that I read for encouragement sometimes of how God moved. And it wasn't even a sermon series about marriages or planting churches or adoption. You know what it was? It was about us opening our hands to God. You remember we prayed at the end of that whole series, God, what would you have me do? That was the question. God, what would you have me do? And then I'm gonna go ahead and lay my yes on the table. I'm gonna risk obeying you, whatever that is. If it's apologize to a friend, if it's to quit my job so I can go into ministry, if it's to go take foster care classes. And if you're not careful, what happens? God will move. And if we take too long to think about it, the moment's over. The world just brings us back in all the what ifs. Can you imagine all that goes, some of you've done this, that you're on this journey of foster care and you've gone through this, especially the foster to adopt. I mean, we've probably had 10 families in our church that have walked through just the most heartache in that foster to adopt. They get a kid in their house and the kid's got all these issues of not being loved well, sometimes physical issues and they bring them in their house. You know, all the what ifs that they think about. Well, what if this and what if that? What if I can't care for this kid? What if this kid never loves me? What if my family doesn't accept them? What if I can't afford it? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And God says, stop it with the what ifs. Do you trust me? Then take a step. Do you trust me? Then open up your hands. We don't bless God when we hedge our bets. It's been a year and a half since we went through that series and a lot of us has just, we've slipped back into our old MO of cultural expectations. What we need is a change in perspective. We need to see ourselves as farmers. Farmers know that the only way to secure the future is to sow as much seed as they can. Hoarding seed is not gonna accomplish much. Our money's the seed that God has given us to grow a harvest for his kingdom. And he promises us in chapter nine of second Corinthians that he will actually multiply our seed and increase the harvest of our generosity. If only we are faithful to sow. Think about this just for a second. If we can be, if God can be trusted with our eternal salvation, can't he be trusted with tomorrow? Can he be trusted with our financial security? Can he be trusted in a life lived without fear? Trusting God and who he has promised and, and what he has promised to accomplish for us. This is what faith is. And scripture says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what do we do from here, Luke? How do we live a life of radical generosity? We have some choices to make. Whenever we, talk about, whenever we talk about money in church, people always go back to the tithe and they say, well, you know, this is New Testament, not Old Testament. We don't have to tithe anymore. No, notice that Paul didn't even mention the tithe here. The tithes were the Old Testament commandment that the people of Israel would give their first fruit to their income, 10% is what tithe actually means, to the temple ministry and it would take care of the priests and the incense and their care of benevolence and all those kind of things. But Paul doesn't mention it at all, why? Because the tithe is just a starting place. The New Testament principle is one of sacrificial giving. 
I'm not commanding you to do anything here, Paul says, but I want you to see this as an example of, a Macedon, of the Macedonian church who gave cheerfully, with joy, above their ability, and God did some supernatural things through their obedience. Go read 1 Thessalonians to see about what God did. 2 Thessalonians, man, incredible what God did in their church. I got two questions for you. The band, come on up. Do you wanna live superficial or supernatural lives? Superficial or supernatural? If we give the leftovers to God, then we live a leftover, superficial, spiritual life. And many of us settle in here for superficial when we could be living with supernatural power and we read John 10, 10 about the abundant life and the river of life inside of us and it makes literally no sense to us because we're living life for ourselves. However, if we respond in faith to what God's doing in our hearts and we give generously, we see supernatural things begin to happen. I read this verse this week in Acts 13. Verse 36, let me read to you. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep. I pray every day for my kids. And I pray that my kids would be sensitive to the voice of God. That's my number one prayer. I pray every day for them. That that sensitivity would start with salvation as the Holy Spirit's opening up their heart and their mind. But that that wouldn't just be, that would be just, I mean, literally the beginning, that their entire life would be navigated through by the voice of God. St. Clair, I need you to do this. Or Hudson, how about this? Ellie, I got this thing for you. See, long after I'm gone, the Spirit's the one that's gonna indwell them and lead them. The Spirit can go with them in places I can't go with them. I want, I want to go with them everywhere. That's not loud. Everywhere that's not loud, I want to go with them. We have Life 360 and we watch where they're going and Claire's about to start driving and I I can't go all the place. The Holy Spirit can. And I asked the Spirit, man, I asked God, God, would you make my kids sensitive to your spirit? About about who they're going to marry one day and what college they're going to go to and what friends they need to have and what to say yes to and no to. But I added a prayer this week as I read this passage in verse 36. I'm going to pray to be sensitive to God, yes. But it says, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation. I want that to be the epitaph on my tombstone. Don't you? For Luke, after he served the purposes of God for his own generation, he fell asleep. I want that to be for my kids. I'm praying that for my kids. For about a week now, every day I've been praying, God, I pray that Claire would understand the purposes of God for her generation. I don't understand this new generation. I I don't. I'm so lost. I can't work Google Maps. I I used to make fun of my dad for the only thing he needed help with is like programming the VCR. And I couldn't even figure it out. They made those things so hard. NASA couldn't figure out a VCR. Now I'm the guy and I don't know how to do it. But God is raising up a generation to reach those people to serve the purposes of God in their generation. I wonder what would be said if our life ended today. Would it be said of you that you served the purposes of God or that you served your own purposes? We wanna live superficial, supernatural lives. That's the question. Do we want immediate or ultimate payoff? Immediate gratification comes when we keep God's money, we use it on us, your stuff and your comfort and 
the attitude of the owner, not the steward. My money, my life. But ultimate reward, ultimate satisfaction comes when you live with both hands open. It's the attitude of the faithful steward. I want to close by looking at, you don't have to look at your Bible, I have it on the screen. The promises of God for those who give generously. In verse 6, that you will reap bountifully. In verse 8, that you will be sufficient in all things, abounding in good works. In verse 10, that your seed will be multiplied and you will have a harvest of righteousness. In verse 11, that you'll be enriched in every way. In verse 12, that your needs will be met. In verse 13, that you'll glorify God. And in the latter part of verse 13, that you will be a living statement of the gospel. So what is it, church? Running out or running over? If you want to grow a heart of generosity, one of the hardest things, one of the best steps to take today is just to sow more, to give more, and it'll be returned back to you. Now, it's often not given back in the same way it was sown. A farmer doesn't go sow seed to get more seed. They sow to get fruit. Imagine what it would look like if our faith family became more involved in radical generosity. Imagine the homeless people that would find homes. Imagine the missionaries that will be sent out, the church plants that will start all over the literal world. How your very neighborhood could be changed because of the generosity of our faith family. I read this week that the average family in America pays $1,500 in credit card interest rates per year. $1,500. $1,500 is what it costs us to start a new house church in Cuba. Just off the interest, we could start 100 churches a year off the interest if we're average of the credit card debt we're paying. I want everyone today to take a step of generous giving. Now listen, this money's not even coming to us before you even say that I'm doing this to get a raise. Listen, I ain't got a raise in six years. That raise ain't coming. There's a church plant. We're gonna take all this money and we're gonna give it to Shane. Shane's one of our church planters in the lower ninth. God's doing a real cool work down there. He doesn't know this is coming. And you say, but I've already given this month. Well, great. This is not about your tithe. This is about being generous. We're going to put a Venmo link on the screen. And as we close, I want everybody to give. If you don't have Venmo, you can, you can write a check or give a dollar. Listen, it is not about the amount. If it's a dollar, that's great. If it's five, it's 10, it's a hundred. Here's what, I, I want it to hurt a little bit. I want you not, be, not to be able to do something that you were gonna do. I can't go get a coffee on Monday. I live, oh man, I just long for that Monday morning coffee. I can't go do that. I gotta make coffee at the house so I can get $5 so I can help uh, spread the gospel in the, in the lower ninth of New Orleans. I want all of, us to, all of us to give. So you can give it and we're gonna pass baskets uh, as we normally do at the end. If you don't wanna do the Venmo thing, you can do it that way, that's fine. You can give on your church app. You can give in Bitcoin if you would like. I'm sure, I don't know how, that, how even that works, but if you could, Dogecoin, Dogecoin, you can give him that. That's not even a thing anymore, right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, as this church did, I want you to commit yourself first to the Lord. We're gonna have communion. Our stations are up. You don't have to be part of our church to take communion, but you do have to be part of God's family. This is the gospel. Did you see how Paul brought the gospel in because of the grace of God? because of Jesus' willingness. Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him.
He who knew no sin, Jesus, took my sin and your sin. He became sin for us so that we didn't have the consequences that were coming to us, life separated from God, but instead he gave us the reward of his own, his own very life. That is the beauty of the gospel. And some of you, before you give any money, you need to give your life to him. Today's the day that you would take a step of salvation. We'll have the prayer team in the back. Our communion servers are coming. Let me pray for us. God, I just pray over your people. Lord, you know our hearts. Lord, we can sing the songs and dance the dances and we know all the things, but Lord, you look at our hearts and you're looking at our heart this morning and you're doing some things in us. Lord, I pray that it would be said of those in this room that we would be like David, that we serve the purposes of God for our generation and then fell asleep. Lord, you hadn't put us here just to have bigger houses and bigger storehouses and better countertops. That's not why we're not even to reach degrees and to be popular on camp. You have not put us there. You have put us to serve your purposes. Lord, help us to be sensitive to what you're doing. Holy Spirit, lead us. Even in this room, as we pray, if there's something that you're leading us to do, relationship that needs to be restored or someone that needs to a word of encouragement that we would go and pray for them. Lord, I want my life to be saturated in your purposes. Lord, lead us as only you can lead us. Thank you for the gospel. It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen. You move when you're ready. The prayer team's in the back. Communion servers are here. If you need to get a little closer, if you can put the Venmo thing back on there, just leave that on there. If you can get a little closer and take that picture during this time, you can do that. You pray with someone there, there. Do what God leads you to do. Don't leave without responding to the move of God.